listener production. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Uh, everyone relax. This is Tofot with friends. Uh, I am Will Anderson and my friend is Sam Peterson. I went with a very florid introduction, Sam. This is my first podcast back for the new year and I've been going through all the uh, record- recording requirements, recording requirements, uh, <laughs> okay, all I'm the buttons one. that you have to press, all the microphones. <laughs> <laughs> and look, it's fair to say, hasn't you hasn't got it. off to an absolute flyer. <laughs> there's been there's been recording issues. There's been internet issues. Uh, still, I haven't been able to speak properly. It's really, it's a great start to the new year. So happy 2024. Thank you for being the first friend on Tofop uh, with friends. Well, the first of my friends on Tofop with friends for 2024. Do you think I'm Charlie's friend as well? Thank you for having me. But do you think I could be Charlie's friend this year as well, or is it exclusively a will friend on uh, on Tofop with friends this year? Now, I feel like we've talked about this before, but I can't remember what the resolution was that we got to. Haven't you done? I have. A, I've done, uh, I've done quite with a few. Charlie? Quite a few with Charlie. I've done. We talked about yeah. five. The band. <laughs> uh, quite a lot. I think in great detail. Every time That's I've right. been on, we've yeah. only talked about five. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that checks out. I mean, that could be one of about twenty-five episodes <laughs> that we did last year. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, okay. So I would. Yeah, so then I would proffer that perhaps that you are one of the true, you, Dave Anthony, Gareth Reynolds, there's a select few that I would consider to be proper, like you're both Charlie's friend and my friend in the TOEFOP universe and you are definitely one of those people. Well, it's an honour. It's an honour to be both of your friends. And I was telling you in your first introduction, Will, how much I enjoy the countdowns that you and Charlie do every week. Like... (laughs) The wonderful, but now that you've started recording in person together, it misses that, you know, the the Riverside countdown when you start recording. You don't get the same countdown every time, which, uh, which you know, you've. I mean, you've done it. You've done a lot of the countdowns before, so I can't say that you know you need to do it every week. But it is it is funny that you two have been recording in person with no countdowns for once. Well. Here's well, okay. Here's a couple of things in regard to that. So yes, we have been for the very first time in a very long time, been in the same room for a couple of recordings, and wow, that's a much more fun experience. It turns out I'd forgotten what it was like because that's <laughs> obviously what the podcast used to be. In fact, we could only record it if we were in the same place. And then over the years, with technology changing, us living in different places, and the pandemic. You just got used to the idea that you didn't need to be in the same space. And after a while, you start to think, oh, we can do the same sort of vibe and the same sort of energy and the same sort of show down the line. And I think we've got pretty good at getting it a lot closer to what it was like in person. But then to go back to being in person, like we've, I mean, this is, so funny because we often can change our mind when it comes to TOEFOP and what we do with things. But one of the things that we're going to try to do this year, and in fact, by the time people hear this, they probably would have heard some of these episodes, is instead of us doing it down the line like this on Riverside Weekly, 
Charlie's going to fly to Sydney and we're going to do a month of episodes in a day because it's just so much better to be in the same room with each other. It's so much better. Look, I got so sick on my podcast, Confessions, I got so sick in lockdown of recording over Zoom and then people going, I forgot to record on my end or I didn't record on my end or I lost the recording and there were so many of those. But then I always looked at the great Josh Earl and I always felt so much better about my life because he was always editing for people, going, you know, like interrupting each other and the flow is just not the same. Like with you and Charlie, two people, it it, it makes it a tiny bit easier to do it and you two have great chemistry and know each other so well. But I always looked at Josh who was doing it, you know, with four other people all interrupting each other at once. I think he had the Auntie Donna people, Michelle Brazier and Demi Lardner all on one episode. (laughs) And I looked at that and I saw his edit. He put up a photo of his edit going, this was a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been a really dark episode of Herman's Head if they were all the personalities that were in Herman's Head. Or for younger listeners, I believe, the movie Inside, maybe? Is that what that's about? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe that's what that's about. That was a good reference for the under fives, Will, (laughs) that might be listening today. (laughs) Big Disney fans, big Disney fans. But I've noticed that it's, it's so much easier and nicer to record in person. You just get a totally different feel for a guest, especially if you've never met them before as well. And what I do is I always read out Reddit confessions. Mm -hmm. And I did it with a few people in America who didn't want to interrupt me at all. So I would be pausing at the moments that I thought, Mm. would you know, pause for laughter. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for them to say something. And sometimes they didn't say something. And Will, they were very short episodes. I told you (laughs) off air that I lost an episode (laughs) and I will like lost in inverted commas, lost an episode. And that was someone in America who did not want to interrupt me at all I think they got about three words in and all they said after it was god that was interesting (laughs) yeah it is you can say something more if you want (laughs) (laughs) yeah there is that uh expectation in the pause that it's somebody else's go right but the I think (laughs) think that the internet does take that away a little bit because sometimes that pause can just be the buffering of the connection that you're having with somebody. So if you don't know somebody, even when you do know somebody, sometimes it can be hard to tell, is this thought done? Should I start and jump in? Or versus is this just a pause so they can ramp up for the next thing that they're going to do? I had a friend a little while ago that told me they did a podcast and it was the most shambolic podcast in the world where the host had gotten a system in place and see what you think about this, Will, where they treated it like it was a walkie-talkie over Mm. because the internet was so bad that they went, they said their point and went over and then the other person had to say over when they were done with their point and it was the most disjointed, they obviously cut out the overs in the actual podcast, but it was the most disjointed podcast I've ever heard. But that is the difference between that podcast and if Charlie and I had got onto that riff, we absolutely would have left the overs in. The overs would have been all it was about. Like, you know, like we would have started trying to subvert the genre, much like the countdown that you were talking about at the start on Riverside because the thing about the countdown is, 
I think probably a more popular podcast, a more successful podcast, might not think that the best way to start your podcast is a riff on a countdown that nobody listening to the podcast gets to see or hear. But we've decided that we think that is immensely funny. And if we decided that at the end of every sentence we had to say the word over, then that would become our Abbott and Costello bit where I mean, when I said over then, does that mean it's Charlie's turn to speak? Like if you're talking about cricket and you want to bowl at the end of the over, do you have to say over, over? Like like that would be the bit. <laughs> it would, it would. And I can imagine you going, I reckon that would be a year of content for you and Charlie, <laughs> yes. really. Like if you really wanted the, to. The walkie-talkie is. <laughs> over. <laughs> <laughs> They did a year of walkie-talkie. Yeah. There's every time we have a meeting about the show, like a general, because we put obviously everything's in the Everyone Relax feed now, which just means that you can find all our shows in the one place. And it's great because it gives us permission to then, Charlie and I like doing lots of different little projects. So he'll like, you know, do a little series with somebody about video stores or about like unexplained phenomena or whatever, or, you know, we'll do a little mini series about five or we'll talk to uh, Elias, our, you know, who had the biggest horse in all of Norway and we'll hear about his life and his adventures. And it's very, yeah, yeah. it's very hard to explain to some, some people what the show is because the show is so many things. Sometimes we'll have a football podcast or a cricket podcast or just whatever we're interested in. And so we thought it should all be in the one place. But the amount of times that Charlie and I, because we now have other people, at least another person or two in these meetings generally, Mike, our producer, or maybe even somebody else from listener at some some stages, but mostly Mike, our producer, and we'll be in these meetings and there'll be this moment where Michael just have to look at us like, yeah, the, the aim of this meeting wasn't to make things more complicated. It was, you know, because Charlie and I, every time we have an idea, it is a more bizarre, complicated, like non-commercial decision. And so to like then say them out loud in front of like a, an actual human being whose job it is to rein it all in a bit is actually a good wake-up call sometimes. <laughs> I love that, that usually, you know, you're having a few meetings on air as well, that sometimes you have a meeting on air. What was the the experience of Russell Crowe, him calling in? Was it, I I remember when you two were were doing that, it was so funny listening to you two going, it might not happen. Was there there a moment when you were recording when you thought he might not actually call in? Mm. And what if it was a massive prank was there was there that moment where you just thought you would have discarded the episode or would you have gone ahead with it no i reckon if you were nervous about that sort of thing what you would have done is you just would have like got him to call in in the first place done the interview and then just gone back and recorded the start as if you didn't know whether he was going to call or not like that's what i personally probably would have done in that circumstance if you were worried yeah. about that we obviously weren't <laughs> yeah. worried about that so that's absolutely not what we did yeah, but yeah, yeah. like but yes if you were in a scenario where you were a person who was worried about the fact that he was now i i was pretty sure that he was going to call like that's the truth of it right the panto was that we were unsure that he was yeah. going to call but um, I was pretty sure he was going to call because we'd verified the number. There'd been some yeah. key indicators that we were talking to to Russell and he understood what he was in for. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, you know, yeah. Russell has communicated with me 
like about, you know, comedy specials or like, you know, I've interviewed him on the radio. It's not like this was the first interaction that I had ever had with him. I know that he knows who I am and he did a thing for Gruen for us. Like, I mean, you know, he's so, but I've never broached the subject of the fact that we have a 13, 14 year podcast, (laughs) the name of which is a piss take of like the names of his bands. And so I, we were, we were confident he was going to call. But how he was going to take it, like what he was going to be like and like whether he would think this was a lot of fun and he yep. would get into the spirit of it all or whether he would be self-serious and, you know, not fun. Like we, we, we did not know that, you know. We thought, we thought that he would call but we did not no. know what was going to happen. It reminded me of uh, when Mark Marin had uh, the President of the United States at the time, mm-hmm. Barack Obama, on, and for weeks leading up to that, he was talking about if it was or wasn't going to happen. Like, you know, <laughs> he had to have, like, security around his place and everything. But it was so funny hearing him talk about it may or may not happen. And it's just such a funny thing to do for podcasting when you put it out there that, one of the most, you know, the most well-known person in the world might come on the podcast but also might not. And it would have been such a disappointing episode, I imagine, when he gets a guest who is not the president and then he's having to talk to them like, oh, I could have been something else. I could have been talking to the president instead of you right now. Well, funny you should say that because I have sat in that chair. I sat in the exact same chair that... uh, uh, Barack Obama sat in in uh, Mark Maron's podcast studio slash shed because he did an episode of Willosophy and we recorded it right. over in that studio at his old house. Oh, and okay. uh, I know that it was the same chair that Obama sat in because he told me it like 30 seconds into us sitting down. <laughs> like it came up real quick. Like of course it would. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> of course. <laughs> like I mean. I did um, I did a gig with uh, Mark uh one time when he was in Melbourne and he was not having a not having a great time, and I didn't really know him at that point. Like I didn't, mm. I, I listen to his podcast all the time now, but I didn't know who he was at that point. And I did a gig. It was called Big Love, and it was Greg Fleet had organised this gig, and mm. Mark did not want to be there, <laughs> and he did his whole gig about ragging on Fleety, and. <laughs> He was the nicest person, but he was he was just he didn't want to be there. And it was just so funny to realize that it doesn't matter who you are, what comic you are, everyone at some point has been really pissed off with Fleety. Like everyone has had a moment and I was like, it's so funny that this big American star was like pissed off with Fleety and was bitching to me without knowing my relationship with Fleety. He was talking to me about who's this fucking guy I think he is like and then ragged on him for like a 20-minute set about how he didn't want to do the gig and he didn't want to be there. I mean, it's the international language of comedy you know it's a connective tissue that we all have it's the comedy industry's (laughs) six degrees of kevin bacon is the you know six degrees to be asked for fifty (laughs) dollars by greg fleet and (laughs) that's right i it was so funny to watch him We're having a little connection issue here today as well, Sam. Like we, you know, we have all a little of, connection issue. All our, all our little talk about <laughs> lag and doing it over Riverside. We've we've run into the last couple of uh, riffs. We've run into a little overlap. So uh, here's what I'm going to say. Uh, I'm done with my bit. Over. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I, this is good. This is the walkie-talkie stuff. It's good stuff. I I remember watching watching Mark and just thinking he was just so so funny and and just how much he was hating Fleety and how much he was talking about him. And then Fleety did an episode of WTF mm-hmm. while he was a while he was there and it is one of the most interesting interviews because Fleety's like really weirdly cagey as well and I found out later that I think Mark was pissed off about something that he wouldn't want to talk about on the podcast. It was like really interesting. Like, mm. you know, for, there's a great end episode of Josh Earl's podcast with Fleety recently and he talks about his dad dying and he talks about, you know, there's so many interesting stories that he actually goes into but I remember at the time going, oh, wow, so Fleety did this podcast and Fleety didn't know what a podcast was and he was telling me that he did a, you know, like a some radio show with his friend in, in his hotel room and wasn't really into it and didn't really, but then he asked him to come and do a gig that night. And so there was obvious tension there and it is so funny when you're in a comedy room where there's obvious tension there and two people are not getting along at all and it is so funny that the show still goes on and they still do it and they're still there to make people laugh and have a good time but it just becomes a show about how two people hate each other but they're still doing the gig together and it was it was just one of the the most bizarre but funny things to watch as a gig to go oh I was there that moment I was one of 14 people that were there and all Mark spoke about, like, directly after the gig was how much he hated Fleety. And I was like, I know, man, I just watched you <laughs> say on stage that you hated him and that it was, a, it was a bad gig. I watched you do 20 minutes of how much you didn't hide it. Like, I don't know if you thought that you hid that well, but, yeah, I know, I know you don't like him and I know you're pissed off at him and I know you gave him $100 today. I know that, <laughs> I know that things aren't looking up for your relationship. <laughs> Now, are you done? Because you've got to say over. Over. Sorry, over. Over. I didn't. I fuck. I fucked up the walkie talkie bit. I mean, <laughs> it's just half a minute no on this lag, you know? <laughs> so um, it's funny that you say that about Mark because he is, I think, even when he's at his, like, he's such a lovely person. Like, you know, I spent a little bit of time with him over the years at various different things and, you know, always found him to be such a, you know, kind-hearted, big-hearted, lovely person, but he has this, like, natural state of comedic disposition. Yes, yeah. That is so intrinsic to, you know, who he is. Like, and in the same way as Tom Gleeson isn't, you know, the Tom Gleeson on stage, off stage, you know, he's a much more rounded, you know, compassionate character, but, but it's, but it is part of him. It's just this like elevated part of him that he can switch on and turn up for, you know, when he's using it to entertain people. And it's the same with Mark, I think, you know, he just turns up the, <clears throat> I was backstage with him one night in Montreal and Aziz Ansari at, at the time was like on like a rise. That was the, when he was kind of like, you know, coming through and just was like, you know, dominating everywhere. And he had this routine about the thread count of sheets. And it honestly was a really funny routine. But I've since looked it up and it's not quite as funny as I remember it because what I actually remember about it is Mark Marin to Aziz's face when he came off stage telling him what he thought about the idea that he was using his comedic powers to talk about the thread count of sheets. And it was honestly 
That's what I remember as being the funniest thing I've ever seen. The routine's fine and the other thing wouldn't have existed without the routine, but it was really Mark's immediate review to Aziz's face in front of everybody of that routine that, that sticks in my mind forever. Over. <laughs> the, the over thing is never not going to make me laugh. I when I, I did my set and I spoke about my facial palsy and then the funny thing that I always tell, I think, I told the great Tony Martin, you know, who always loves to hear a story about Fleety or any kind of story about comedy at all. And I told him mm. that when I was when I was sitting there after the gig, Mark just looks at me after I've spoken about facial palsy for like 10 minutes on stage. He turns to me and goes, so what you got? And it was just like the the funniest thing out of nowhere to just be like, I just spoke about it on stage for ages. I called it facial palsy for ages. And he just goes, what you got? <laughs> just like that was the in of conversation. And I was just like, it's so funny because I always forget how my favourite people are comics and I always love talking to comedians because there's there's always a shorthand. There's you don't have to you don't have to do the small talk and you don't have to say I'm joking after something or you don't have to do that. And it is so funny that in that moment he knew he didn't have to skirt around what he really wanted to ask. It was just going, what you got? And that was it. And that was the whole conversation. And then he kind of looked pissed off when I told him that I have facial palsy and he kind of looked off into the distance and wanted to get out of that room as quickly as he could. Over. Uh, So speaking of facial palsy... Good. This is a good segue. Look at me being a professional (laughs) podcaster. That's all those years of broadcasting experience. Uh, Your Riverside popped up as facial palsy's own semi (laughs) P on my screen at the start of this, but it you are doing a a, like you're doing a stand up show again. Like my my favourite comedy adjacent friend has decided to dip their toe back into the world of uh, stand up standing up comedy. Uh, So. Tell people about what's happening and, and why this is happening and, you know, just give us a little bit of a scene setter over. Well, I I decided last year I had the, the worst year of my life was 2023 and I decided I really wanted to do a show and the great Tony Martin told me quite a few times that I had all these weird stories that I'd kind of never spoken about when I was doing stand-up and there's one, there's one thing that – I've always loved this story and it's been this strange thing that I tell at dinner parties, but I've never, I've never done it on stage and I wasn't doing stand-up. I hadn't done stand-up in five years and I decided that I wanted to do a show called Why the Long Face and the reason it's called Why the Long Face is I had a meeting with a book publisher who was publishing a book at the time that was called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Chemo and it was this amazing book by this comedian called Luke Ryan and it was really popular. You would have known about it, Will. Like it was a really popular book at the time. Mm -hmm. And I went for a meeting with him and he said to me, you are going to write the next funny thing happened on the way to chemo. And I was like, have I got cancer? Like this is a weird way to find out. And he goes, no, no, no. I want you to write a book about your facial palsy. And 
I was just like, so, you know, like the the thought of doing that was like, you know, it wouldn't be a very long book because I can't imagine it would be that interesting unless I put the what you got as my uh, my into it. But I decided in that moment, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I really want to write that. And he said, I've even got a title for you. It's Why the Long Face. And, mm. you know, it made me feel like a horse in that moment. And then his tagline was, the story of a boy who's trying to make people laugh when he can't even smile himself. So that was the full, the full. Um, I mean, if if I, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in. I know you haven't said over, but I've got to get in on this because this is incredible because this feels like, because I've had these moments about myself, not you know, moments of revelation, you're in the shower, you're on a walk, you're going for a swim and you suddenly think, oh, there's a good name for something or an idea or like a, a kernel. And this guy one night has just gone, he's been looking at, you know, you're in the book publishing industry, you've got to look at the things that are popular at the time. Yep. He has like identified this thing which is some somebody who is differently abled in some kind of way who has a career in comedy so you get to talk about those sort of things. And it's like, and then he's thought, Oh, a horse walks into the bar. Bartender says, why the long face? One of the classic comedy jokes of all it's time. Hilarious. And this guy's suddenly like, well, I've got it, right? Like he's at this stage, he probably hasn't even thought of you. Probably doesn't even know you exist at this point. He's already he, – all he needs is someone with a long face of some kind. He doesn't even Guilty. need facial palsy at this point. He is literally just like, you know what? I've got the idea. All I need – I've got the title of the book. I've got the idea of what it's about. All I need to now find someone in the world of standing up comedy who in some way could be described as having a long face. And then he's had to work out who that was. Like I think that's the way this idea has been. I don't think he's seen you and had this idea. I think he's had this idea and then he's found you. (laughs) I think so too. I think so too. He saw me at a gig that I was doing. I was opening for Greg Fleet at the time, of course, and there was a there was a gig that he was doing during the Melbourne Fringe Festival. And what he would do is he would mm-hmm. introduce you after he would come out and do 10 minutes. So the audience were really on your side. It was actually a really nice thing to do because I only had five minutes of stand-up and I was like nervous to be there. And I was I was probably about, you know, 20, 21 years old. And Fleety one night, I got back up, did my set, and then I introduced Fleety and Fleety did not come back that night, right? So I I said, everyone welcome back, Greg Fleet, Greg Fleet, Greg Fleet. It was like the shittest magic trick of all time because Greg Fleet did not come back. And then I had to do my, I decided in that moment, I'll just like do my set again because I only had five minutes of material. So mm. I was just like, better do something. And Fleety did not come back. And this was that night that I met the book publisher. So it was a really weird night where yeah. he saw me that one time and he decided in his head, I've got a book idea for this guy. And I had to go and meet with him. And obviously I did not write did not write the book, Will, spoiler alert, did not, did not write this book. But he said to me that he could put me on the cover of the book if that doesn't freak people out too much. So he was really he was uh-huh. really into yep. he was really into the idea. <laughs> really into he the was idea. Really, you know, he was 
Very supportive. He was like, we'll make it one of those fold-in books, like a mad magazine. And so, you know, people can, there's, there's two versions of it. We'll do one where we Photoshop your face yeah. to look a bit more normal, if you don't mind. Like, that's okay. And I've got this other idea where I'm going to type the first thing in regular typing, but then the second half will be in cursive. It's a real play on facial palsy that I think is going to really read well on the page. Like... <laughs> He he was so he was so into the idea and he was so passionate about it, which was so weird for him yep. to be passionate about the idea, which I think you're absolutely right that he had this idea and then found me and decided that this was mm. going to be the idea. But I didn't I didn't write the book and then So you you heard this absolutely hilarious idea that we can all agree is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Why the long face? Very funny stuff. Very funny. Um, clearly at 21 years old, you definitely should write a book about your life. That's the perfect time to write a book about your life. You know, great experiences. Yeah, I mean, yeah. honestly, probably you could have just written a book about like explaining what facial palsy was and then literally just about that run you did with Greg Fleet. That's it. That probably would have been all you needed for the 60 or 70,000 words the book was going to be. But here's uh, what you did instead. You stopped doing standing-up comedy. You went away. You decided Mm. to just be comedy adjacent, make podcasts and films and documentaries and all sorts of other stuff creatively that you were doing. Mm -hmm. And then you decided, you know what? I got an itch. I got a little itch that I need to scratch. I've got this story that I want to tell and you've decided to, to yes, to get back into standing up comedy. Yeah. So I've, I've decided now, I don't know, there was, a, there was just a time I didn't do it for five years. I had a, found out I had a heart condition on stage where I blacked out one night uh, on stage and I, I walked away. I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to wait this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how I go. I'm going to get my health back on track. and. Five years decided. Okay, I'm. I'm. It's it's kind of time to come back. And I was doing a lot of live podcasts at the time, and then I was doing a little bit of a little bit of talking to the crowd before each time I'd record a live show. And I kind of thought this is probably this is leaning more towards stand up. And then I started to think about all those things like Why the Long Face and all of those sorts of stories that I could do as an hour show and see if I liked being back, see if I liked, you know, especially I think if I got another, you know, 10 years down the road, I I, I kind of feel like I would regret having not tried to have done an hour show about this and it would have been a bit of a, a, a bit of a regret, I think, if I went back and didn't do it. So I wrote it in, yeah, a night. I wrote the the entire show and then asked a director if they would help me put it together. And I had these meetings with comedians, you know, just to kind of meet up and chat about it. And I met with one person who I was asking all questions, Will, that I knew the answers to. Like I was just going, so do you do a trial show? And they're like, yeah, you do a trial show. And you go, and I just get up and start doing stand-up again to get better at it. And they go, yeah, you just do that. And I was just asking all of these questions that I absolutely, they were so basic. They were, they were probably, I wasted someone's time just going, yeah, so I have to have to just kind of get up there and do comedy rooms again. And they go, yep, just get up there and do comedy rooms again. And I, and I go, do I write it before? And they go, yep, write it write it before and it was so ridiculous. I think they thought I was having a bit of a mental breakdown that I 
<laughs> some sort of mental collapse that I was going, well, so what do you do? How do you do this? And how, but I, I, I guess after being five years away, you are so ridiculously rusty. Like, I don't know, like, well, I, I don't imagine you've stopped doing stand up for more than a few weeks or, you know, I don't know the longest break that you've had, but having five years off and then doing I don't, it. I don't know if you heard, I don't know if you heard about this thing called the global COVID-19 pandemic, but <laughs> it's made it up, turns Will. out I, I actually had this. heaps of time off doing yeah. stand-up. <laughs> well, during the scam, scamdemic, the scamdemic, I did have, I, I mean, 12 months, 18 months off, yeah. like a long time. I, I think, you know, it was a year between like gigs for me, a year to the day yeah. actually, I remember. And the other thing is that I've not actually done a set set <clears throat> Since before the pandemic. So it's nearly four years since I've gone on stage and I've done my own shows in that time and I've been doing my improv shows and all those, but I haven't been doing the scene. I haven't been doing spots and I'm in that position myself at the moment where I'm thinking about my new show and I feel like, oh, you know, maybe I might like go back out into the clubs and start to, you know, work it. But there's there is a, s- a small part of me which might seem ridiculous to people saying I've been touring shows to thousands of people in big theatres, but there's something quite intimidating about taking that same routine or those same jokes in their early stage to a, like, I guess at my own shows, like, firstly, if there, if something's not good, they're all there to see me and so they trust that I will be able to make it good, right? Mm-hmm. If you give me the time it'll get good, right? Yeah, you will be yeah. entertained. This bit right now might not be entertaining, but trust me, you've already earned the trust to be able to get to when it's good. But, yep. you know, I, you feel like going back to the scene, you're like, you don't want to be embarrassing in front of other people. I think that's the hardest thing about it to me is you know that it's part of like what you need to do and you know that things don't come out perfectly and you know that most comedians in the world work their material by going to clubs and getting it right before they take it to, like it is a tried and true method to working out how to do things. But it's also like if I'm embarrassing at my own shows, only only I and and my audience know about it. Whereas like that idea of popping down and having seven open micers see me be embarrassing is, it is embarrassing. Well, the the first gig, one one of the first gigs I did back, there was the MC who said, you know, I hadn't been... I hadn't been there, you know, I hadn't I hadn't been doing stand-up for a long time and he remembers when I used to do stand-up and he was doing this on stage and he asked a few of the audience members where they were from and they were listeners of my podcast that came along and were excited to see me do stand-up and I was so excited about that. I thought, oh, but, you know, a little bit nerve-wracking that now I've got three people here and I've got these comedians up the back that I know really well but I haven't done stand-up in a very long time. And I got up and after I finished the set, I got off and the the MC said, gee, there's some great jokes from 2013. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so now, brutal. Were they your were they your jokes from 2013? Hmm. Or like or were you 
doing new stuff that felt like it was 2013. <laughs> I was doing jokes that I used to do because I wanted to get back up yeah, and okay. to be comfortable with mm. material that I used to do. It wasn't anything. It wasn't like, hope this Donald Trump doesn't get in. Like, you know, it wasn't it wasn't topical <laughs> gear. <laughs> you know, that Shane Warne, gee, he texts a lot. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was doing uh. that sort of gear that could have been from the early 2000s or something. But I was doing <laughs> gear that I had already done and it was so brutal to have someone as soon as I walked off stage call it exactly what it was. Like call me out on going, you, you're not doing new material. But I was so nervous about getting up and doing material that I had mm. no idea if it would be funny or not, you know, which I'm doing now and finding out that some of it is not funny. But you're doing it to a room of people and your peers that have not stopped doing comedy this whole time and they're they're really good and, 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 you know, they've kind of honed what they're doing. But I just found it so funny to have walked off stage and just thought that went well and then as soon as you walk off stage you hear behind you, gee, that was some great material from 2013. Over. I get that. I get that idea though. I get the idea of like wanting to because I don't I don't do any of my old gear anymore. Like, um, you know, I, I use the pandemic, scamdemic, scamdemic, thank pandemic. you. I thank used you. it as an opportunity for me to, yeah, out of respect to you, the scamdemic, <laughs> and I use that as an opportunity to go, whatever the circumstance is, I'm never going back to the old stuff. Well, you, didn't you have a I show? I think that's part of called I'm telling you for the last time and it was all these comedians that you really liked throwing all of your old material into a coffin. Was that what you did? <laughs> Thank you for that <laughs> reference, by the way. That is <laughs> like you and I might be the only two people who enjoy that <laughs> reference as much as we do, but that is a great, great reference. <laughs> like that scene stayed with me for so long. I was like, what is, for people that don't know, Jerry Seinfeld uh, from, as Gary Gorman, the great Gary Gorman says, uh, Jerry from the, uh, Jerry from the sitcom Seinfeld. That's so funny. Jerry from the sitcom Seinfeld. You know, Jerry from the sitcom Seinfeld. Uh, <laughs> Like honestly, one of my favorite. That's like so that to me is that that great simplicity of a joke, right? Yes. Like yeah. that joke can be can be read in and in the fuller routine. There is a like I think people hesitate to um, like you know Jerry's one of the most successful you know stand up comedians in the history of stand up, and he has some very firm ideas about what stand up is and isn't, and he's probably earned the right to you know, make documentaries about him coming back to stand up or doing big specials where um, he's so beloved that when his material is being retired, all the other comedians gather and dig a grave <laughs> and say goodbye to some of the, lest we remember the what's the deal with aeroplane food. Yeah, like, what's with the cabbies and the BO? Know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Jerry from the, from the sitcom Seinfeld is one of the... <laughs> Great jokes. Um, so Jerry from the sitcom Seinfeld, uh, he, you know, he that there is that American thing of them polishing their act and you know getting these routines to be iconic and then deliver them into those specials. And because 
I wasn't really raised in that world. There's a bit more fluidity, I think, to how Australians, because we do the festivals and it depends on how many festivals you do and then you need to turn over new material for the festivals and like, you know, but then you might still be using some old stuff if you're doing club gigs or whatever, you know. And I think that if you're doing the yearly cycle like I used to do, there isn't that opportunity to draw a line under things. And I think sometimes it's a good thing to leave the past in the past, you know, in the same way as I wouldn't wear the same clothes or have the same haircut as I did 15 years ago, I shouldn't be telling the same jokes from the same perspective. But something that I do find interesting that I'm doing in this year's show, and I only I say this because I, you know, I like to talk about this sort of thing, but B, I think maybe it would be something that you could consider as well is like a lot of this year's show is me trying to revisit some of those shorthand assumptions I made about life or things Mm. through the eyes of someone who is 15 years later than that. So sometimes, you know, you can go back to those jokes, but just go back to them fresh, go back to them new, like go back to them with a different perspective, you know, don't, don't fall into the thought or perspective you had 15 years ago. You can still sometimes talk about the same thing, but take that funny idea and go, how do I think about it now rather than I'll repeat how I thought about it 15 years ago? Well, it's so interesting you say that, Well, because there there was one joke that I used to do that I used to always close with because it always got the best response and I look back on it from doing it five years ago and I was like, there's just a word in it that I wouldn't use now and it's not even a bad word. It, it, it is just something that I wouldn't use now just in case there's a crowd that wouldn't like me using that word. Now it's not it's not a slur, it's nothing derogatory, but it is interesting that I've now changed that one word and I did it that first time and it didn't work anymore because it it just wasn't and I tried it a few other times. And then you go, "Oh yeah, this this does not work anymore because it needed that one little thing." for it to be funny. And I've, I've gone through all of those old things and I've gone, oh, okay, so I can still do that. I can still do that if I change little bits. And I've done that with a lot of the material I used to do. But now it is interesting going, oh, I can't do that bit anymore because it's not funny without a reference that I can't say anymore. Well, I could easily say and there would be no issue with it. But for mm-hmm. me, I go, I've, I've changed a lot since then and it's just not something that I want to say not because I, I, I just get so worried about offending that one person where I'm like, you know what, I don't want to be that person. And also an audience perspective changes a view I've noticed so quickly. So if I say one thing, like people would know looking at me or seeing me on stage that I'm a very progressive person. But if you say one little thing that doesn't have the context of something else, it is so interesting to see a whole crowd go, we didn't, we had the wrong idea of this person. <laughs> we don't, we don't really trust them in the, in the same way that we did. Yeah, five I, I mean, I think, I think that's worse if you're not doing it to, yeah, I mean, of course you, some people could be doing it literally for that effect, right? Yes, to jolt yeah. someone or whatever. Yeah. But if that's not your intention, then I think people feel betrayed because if someone comes on like a Jim Jeffries and says, this is who I am and all my opinions are going to be, you know, from this like or Anthony Jezelneck or Jimmy Carr or whatever, you've signed up to the conceit that this is their perspective, right? But if suddenly Mike Brabiglia or like Pete Holmes or like Josh Earl suddenly just has that moment that's like you're like, oh, no, I – 
I, I liked you. Yeah. Part of why I'm here is like I really like felt like we were on the same page. And yeah, then you yeah, said yeah. that Louis C.K. is the greatest comedian of all time and always will be and nothing will go wrong with that. And I'm not sure that we can now be on the same page. Yeah. And it is, I, I don't know, there's, there's that perspective, you know, there's a, there's a reason the the windscreen is bigger than the rear vision mirror, you know, where you go, I always should be looking forward instead of looking back too much. But it, it is so interesting to go with material that I used to do, like you were saying, that one little thing that you can change that makes it even better now because you go, oh, I've got I've got a new perspective on this that I didn't really think about and the world has changed incrementally in those little bits and now I can do it in a in a way that is funnier because I've got a different perspective on it and I'm also looking back at at maybe when I was you know when I was a bit younger and going oh that guy didn't really know a whole lot like I know I know a little bit more about the world now and so not heaps <laughs> but yeah, a little bit so you go oh okay so now I now I know that this bit is so much funnier with five years, five years difference, which I'm sure yes. you're doing in that as well. You go, oh, shit, I'm well, not that, but over. It's, it's not just, it's just, yeah, it's not just the, like, perspective, but sometimes literally you can say so there's a, I won't, I don't want to give too much away because this is kind of one of the bits in the show this year, but I had an opportunity, the kind of overall theme of the show is me finding out something about my dad that I didn't know and how it, gave me the opportunity to evaluate, reevaluate some other things from a different perspective as well. And so it's about the idea that in comedy we can work so often in shorthand and people become, you know, very shorthand caricatures of like my dad is this thing, this thing and this thing because these are the three things about my father that I use comedically. So when I paint the picture of my father or my life on the farm or my parents' perspective on who I am or whatever – they're painted through these shorthands because like comedy doesn't reward complexity, but particularly early on when you're doing five minutes, when you have to introduce yourself to an audience quickly, it certainly doesn't reward complexity at that point. But maybe when you're older and you have an opportunity to look at things in a more complex way that you can tease out like the like a, a more full story I mean, the amount of jokes that I've done over the years that rely on my parents, like the punchline being some version of my parents being disappointed in me, is probably the greatest lie. That's my Hassan Minaj, you know, I got, got, I got sent anthrax in the mail, is like <laughs> the fact that like my, my parents have never told me that they're disappointed with me or not proud and they've had plenty of opportunity. I've done heaps of things they shouldn't have been proud of and they have generally been quiet and supportive if sometimes from a distance, you know, so – is there a way that I can look back in my, at my life in a more honest way through how I feel about the world now, how I see the world now? There's a story that I was going to tell you, which is that um, – so it's a, it's a, it literally is a joke I used to do because I wanted to find a routine that I used to do and then look at it from a completely different perspective essentially is the conceit. And so I used to – it was very early in my career I would tell a story – about um, my dad one night, my sister and I were watching the Olympics with him and I asked if he would love us more if he, he won a, if we'd won a gold medal at the Olympics and he said that he would, right? Like that's essentially the conceit of the story. And I used to tell that story like with the punchline kind of being about like, you know, essentially reliant on the idea that like he is disappointed in us in some way or, you know, whatever it might be, which is just again – 
an unfair reading of one throwaway moment, but it was a good comedic place to be able to like, you know, play in. But what I really want to explore now is this idea of that's like, that was one moment he was probably making a joke more than anything. But secondly, the angle I'm taking on it is he's right. Like as in, like I love my sister and my dad more than, you know, like I I love them, you know, to an infinite amount. But would I love them just slightly more if they'd won an Olympic gold medal? I mean, of course. Like that's just... I mean, of course, <laughs> like that's, it doesn't take anything away from them. <laughs> like, it's not like I have a hole inside me that says, where's your Olympic gold medal? I can only love you if you have one. No, I love them. Like, I love you. But if you'd won an Olympic gold medal, I would love you slightly more. <laughs> a bit cooler. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... That idea of like taking something and going, well, here's this story that I used to tell that had this point or this perspective versus here's now the person that I am now. Here's how I comedically view. And I think that first one's quite a simple telling of that joke. It's a story about like very, you know, you know parent disappointed that you're not the kid that they thought you were going to be, which is more what I projected rather than anything that they ever particularly you know, it's just a funny, I'm a farming kid and I'm not a farming kid. So that's a simple place for me to, you know, paint comedically from early in my career. But now to kind of revisit it, not just through the prism of, of course, that wasn't true, but the prism of, I mean, if you would not love, I don't care. Like I think Radiohead are great, but they would be even greater if one of them had won an Olympic gold medal. I mean, if all five of them had won a gold medal together, like at the Winter Olympics or something in slate, like in a bobsled, like can you imagine? Like, I mean, they're cool now, but if they won a bobsled Winter Olympics, like gold medal to bo- like, come on. Like it's just, so what I think is great about old material is don't go back to your perspectives or your point of view of when you used to do it, but you can revisit the material and say, oh, what do I think about this now? And why is, is that different to what I thought about it then? Because if you can do that, that's when I think things get really interesting. And isn't it interesting, Will, as well, when you go, not everything is black and white. I think when I was in my mm. 20s, I would probably talk in absolutes a bit more. And then you start to go, Oh, no, like two things can be true at the same time. Two ideas can coexist mm-hmm. and both of them can actually be correct. And, and there's and, and people's perspectives on one thing can change. Like it, it is so interesting when you're having a conversation with someone and they will tell, some, tell you something that you said six years ago that you don't remember at all and they've hung on to it as a really funny thing that you said or a really interesting thing that mm-hmm. you said. And you go, oh, I can't remember that. And you go, oh, it's not different things can have a different impact on people as time goes on. And you go, that is so interesting. I remember, here's another Fleety story for you. I, I didn't ask for it, but here you go. But I remember one time when he was telling me a story and it was a really interesting story. And then he said at the end of it, oh, shit, that's, that didn't happen. That's just a bit of stand-up. And I was like, oh, my God, you don't know the difference between your stand-up material and stories that you've made up and an actual 
thing. My favourite show that you ever did was the one about uh, you seeing Matt Damon. I think it was Matt Damon getting out of a... Willennium. Yes. And no, it was, Willuminati. Willuminati. Willuminati, Willuminati <laughs> I think. It yeah. was such a, such a good show and I saw the, the live recording you did of it and it was so funny to go, this is like the fleety thing. This is a perspective that you always believe to be true. And I find that really interesting now being back in the world of stand-up where I have hung on to things of people like, I did a gig with Celia Pacola the other night and she told me how much she liked my set. And I was like, oh my God, that is the highest compliment I could have ever had. And it was a beautiful thing. Tom Ballard said the same thing about my story and gave me some notes after it. And that was really lovely. But when I was doing stand-up, there was a lot of time when because I was with Fleety and I was with Fiona O'Loughlin, I always felt like I was a little shit kicker and it kind of like a little caravan to them that because I was, you know, I'm a bit of an addict addict. I always end up hanging out with addicts and 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 because I think they're really fun for a while. And I was doing that and didn't really feel like I was a co- comedian. I would never call myself one, but I never really felt like I was. And it's so interesting now to go, oh, these people never really accepted me and never really, you know, I, I never felt like I really fit into that world. And now I've come back to it and I've gone, oh, I did, but I didn't know that I did at the time. And now conversations and perspectives and comedians that I never really thought liked me or or didn't, I go, oh, no, no, that was, they've all had their own shit going on. And I, I think we yes. actually, I think, I think it's it's so interesting to revisit things and go, oh, that that little thing that they said, they won't remember saying that to me, but that kind of changed my perspective on something or or that was, you know, I, I had a, when I blacked out on stage and re- found out I had a heart condition, I was at a gig the other night and I walked out on stage and someone up the front went, oh, my God. And I was like, oh, is this a good, is this, a, is this good? Like, you know, I started talking to them and they said, I thought you died when you were on stage that night. I was there. This was an audience member. And it's so interesting now me being back there and going, I thought that would have been the most horrifying thing for people to watch and that, and that people's idea of me changed in that moment or that I went away for a long time and I didn't come back. But it is so... Well, the good news is I've got a uh, book idea for you called I Died on Stage <laughs> and it's all about that moment. <laughs> the boy who tried to do comedy when he kept dying himself. <laughs> but but actually died. <laughs> <laughs> but actually died. The end. It's a short book. But, it, 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 <laughs> but it's so interesting now having people tell me that story from completely different perspectives. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And I but that, are you talking? Are you talking about that in the show? Is that going to be one of yeah, the bits of the yeah, show? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because you know, I, I was talking to a comedian that was telling me a completely different perspective and some funny stuff that I mm. I forgot about. I forgot about all these because mm. I was blacked out. I guess I was kind of passed out. I was pretty busy at the time. But little little bits and pieces where you go, oh shit, and and seeing your show where you talk about where you talk about something that you believe to be true for a very long time is is so, and listening to your podcast, Philosophy, 
it is so interesting to think about those things on a deeper level where you go, oh my God, little, little things that you believe to be true or little things that you go, these are absolutes and this is what I believe and I'm never going to change my opinion on something. And then someone says one thing and you go, my whole opinion has changed and I believe in a completely different thing now. I mean, constantly, like, I think that exactly what you're saying. And that's why I think re-examining the stories that you tell, like, and the way that you tell them is interesting Mm. to me because you are a different person and to be able to look back at something and think, oh, yeah, like, as you said, like, I mean, everybody's had shit, right? Like, you know, you had a shitty year last year, I had a shitty year last year and, Mm. like, you have to get on with things and and do your job. But the truth of it is that, you know, we lost, you know, like, I mean, we literally lost one of our dear friends. Like, you know, it was such a incredibly tough year for so many people. And it, the truth of it is, it always is. Like sometimes we are more aware of the fact that it is when it's a public thing like Cal's death, you can, everybody is like, oh, how are people in the comedy community? We're looking after each other. But the truth of it is that there's always versions of that out playing themselves out in everybody's lives, not just in our community, but in the broader community. And so this idea of how much of our life is defined by the stories we tell ourselves and whether you like I think we all have a version of what you were talking about with Fleety before where he's like, like it doesn't, you don't have to be a stand-up comedian to have told yourself or somebody else a story about yourself or somebody else over and over and over to the point where you believe sincerely that that thing is true or that that thing happened or that your perspective on it is the only perspective. And it's just not true. Like, you know, we all see the world from different perspectives. And like part of the reason that I stopped like, yeah, going to the festival club, you know, at, at the comedy festival was A, because I just felt like too old. I don't want to be one of those old people <laughs> who hangs around too much. But the bigger thing, honestly, is that people who are newer to comedy remember their conversations with people who are yes not as new to comedy more than the other way around. And I don't want to be in a vulnerable situation where you might say something flippantly to somebody who like – considers that to be a much bigger moment for whatever reason that might might entail, right? Like, you know, when I became the boss at work, whenever that was, a long time ago now, but like the best piece of advice that I got was you've gone from being the host of the show to being the boss and just remember that when you are having a conversation with somebody, you are having a conversation with them, the person you knew the same way last year, but you're also now the boss. And that just changes slightly everything that you say because everything that you say has an extra weight to it. And I I think that we're always going through some version of that in our lives. Like I have, what you've realized now is, you know, when you're like, oh, I'm just this like young kid who loves comedy, who is, you know, dagging around with these other people. Well, I mean, that might not be our exact story, but we all have some version of that story. Like yeah, we all yeah. have some version of how we started or how we got into it or, you know, like, there isn't the, you know, the comedy university, you know, academic program that like spits out, you know, comedians ready to go. Like we all find our way here in weird ways and then eventually you get old enough that no one cares how you got here. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're all just like, well, you've been here for ages. Yeah. It doesn't really matter how you got here in the first place. Yeah, yeah. When you're saying that the I watched the one of the most horrifying things in the high fi bar one year, Will, where I saw someone who I thought was a great person, they said something to Wanda Sykes, the amazing comedian Wanda Sykes. Oh yeah. Uh, and said something quite flippantly to Wanda Sykes that mm. was quite insulting. And Wanda then kind of bit back a bit quite rightly and it was one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen where a a comic went up to Wanda Sykes thinking I'm going to have a bit of fun with her and get in in a different way and and, and try and leave a lasting impression and he certainly left a lasting impression and it was such an awful thing to witness to be like you have fucked this up and you're going to remember this for such a long time. I've I've certainly had moments like that and I remember saying things that I thought would be really fun. Like, you know, I had a moment where I, you know, my favourite comedian in the world, you, you know, I, I grew up watching you and Judith Lucy. You were my two mm. favourite comedians and still are. I didn't mean to say were. But... Uh, when when I I you know had a few moments with 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 Judith Lucy, I was super excited, and I remember once referring to you know sitting with her over lunch and and referring to us as if we were like equals talking about stand up, and in my head I still cringe about that moment. I go, what are you talking about? You know, like you're talking to one of the best comedians of all time. And those little things that you still go, ah, oh, shit. Like I've, I've, I've said things to comedians I really respect that I didn't mean what I said and I came at it from the wrong point of view trying to, trying, I guess trying to have a human connection with people where sometimes you go, oh, I didn't mean to refer to myself on the same level as, as someone like Judith. And I don't think she would have even remembered that moment. Like, I don't think that it would be something that she's holding on to or anything. And I've, I've probably said things to you over the years where I'm like, you know, even, even having this conversation where we're talking about old material, I'm like, well, you are a legend. And, 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 and Celia the other night, you go, you know, what a legend. She said she hadn't been doing comedy for five years like me and made it such a conversation where she was saying, we both haven't done stand-up for five years and I had to go, but Celia, you are a fucking legend. Like, you know, just those little conversations where sometimes I remember and go, oh, wow, like I'm I'm glad I'm a different person now that is a little bit more aware. But I think everyone has those moments when they're a really young person trying to have a connection with someone and trying to, try. I, I guess, trying to fit in and, and sometimes... Everyone... Everyone does. Yeah, like yeah, this yeah. is, I mean, this is the absolute. Um, Jerry from the uh, TV sitcom Seinfeld, he uh, talked about the idea that, you know, comedians have a secret handshake. And mm. I, I think about this a lot. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that it is one of the, I, I, I hesitate to say few jobs because I don't know enough about other people's jobs to know how <laughs> that they work. But like, it, it's one of those jobs where they make you do the most terrifying thing about the job on your first day at work, right? Like, and I think in a lot of other professions, they ease you into the, like, you know, I, I, you know, you you get some experience. Like, they don't just put you in a Formula One racing car and go do a couple of laps, see how fast <laughs> you can go. Like, you know, there is a process to get to that point. And yeah. I think that with comedy, on the very first day you do it, 
you're doing the job. You know, you go out there and if it's five minutes, you know, it's just you with your ideas and an audience and trying to connect. And every single comedian who has done comedy has done whatever their version of that is. That it might be in modern times, it might not be a live thing. It might be an online thing or whatever, but they had to make that first video or that first TikTok or whatever it is and put it out there. Mm. And that's like, I think particularly with the live thing, you know, we all understand how difficult it is and we none of us have got to where we are without like being absolutely terrible at it at some point (laughs) and we all know that being absolutely terrible about it is around every fucking corner like that old rich hall line about comedy is a job by a joke by joke job application which you know audiences laugh like ha ha next you know and i think there is something about that that if you've done it, like you can talk to somebody else about it. And I think that often if you're an experienced comedian, if you listen to the younger comedians, it actually reconnects you with that excitement and joy and all those, you know, things that you had when you first started out. Like it's something I like, I love to talk to on philosophy. I've had like a, a bunch of newer comedians on the show and it's just been so fun to talk to them about stand-up because they're in a different point of their career and lives than, you know, if I'm talking to, you know, big names in comedy mm. who've already, it worked out, you know. If I talk to a big name on the podcast, we're talking about, hey, it worked out for you. Let's talk about how it worked out and what you think about life. I'm guessing you probably think life's great because it yeah. worked out. Yeah. But if you talk to people who are, you know, earlier on that journey in that point where they're still working out whether it is going to work out, I find that. Like I love hearing about that and I love seeing people try to work it out. And I I think that you should never stop trying to work it out. It's not a great thing to sell, right? Yeah, like, yeah. People love complexity is, you know, not a great marketing angle. Like I think that finding something and sticking to that thing is a great way to sell something and you see it on like lo- online all the time. Somebody gets a lot of attention for one particular style of video or character or meme or whatever it is that they did and then everything they do from then on becomes some version of yes. you know, the thing that became popular in the first place. And you think, oh, okay, well, you're really great at this but this is all you get to do is just do this <laughs> yeah. one thing. Like you're really good at it but you just get to do this one thing over and over and over again. And I think that Complexity is harder to um, monetize, but I do think that it's a much more honest human way to, like I, I think that when, you know, you're with Judith Lucy and I know Judith and I, like I probably had moments of like that with Judith. You know, we're friends now, like I, you know, I would say and I hope she would be fine with me saying that we are friends. But like when she's, when I started, she was the, like the queen of Melbourne comedy, mm. you know, like. And I still, I'm like you, I think she's the greatest ever. Mm. Like I had an opportunity to write a, she was being nominated for some award and they needed like a testimonial from the community about like, so they wanted like a thousand words or whatever about like why Judith Lucy was, is great. And Mm. like they asked me to do it and it was the hardest thing about it was keeping it to a thousand words because every time that I would write something, I would think about something else that she'd done and how she'd like, you know, 
just the incredible things you've done for the industry. So like everyone goes through that, right? And now you're yeah. through that. You've you've kind of, <laughs> yeah, you're like right. in a different point of your career now. There'll be people coming in talking to you because they, you know, have been listening to confessions and that's how they found out about their favourite comedian and, you know, you're a different person to them now. There'll be young comedians coming up to you kind of saying, you know, how do you do this? How do you get into it? There's a, uh, I remember the, the greatest bit of advice I ever got was um, from you when you told me to uh, take my first set off YouTube. Uh, I got a friend of mine to film it and you told me to take it down. And I'm like, that was the best because it is so funny. It is so funny now when I see people put their first sets up and I am so happy that no stand-up of mine exists because I remember, you know, doing doing a joke about masturbation, Will, which was absolutely groundbreaking, you know, like jokes that I would, topics that I would never talk about now, you know, and it was about, you know, it, it's so funny to to go back and go, shit, the stuff that I was talking about then I would not talk about now and I'm so happy that that little clip on on YouTube of me talking about that does not exist anymore and it is such a good it's piece a, of it's advice. A, it's almost my best and it's, you're not the only person I've given that <laughs> advice to. Uh, and I, I, at one stage there was somebody who was resisting and it's everyone's decision. They can make their own decision. But there was part of me in my mind that I was like, what if I buy it uh, from you for $500 right now and you take it down and I yeah. buy it but I own it yeah. and then 10 years from now I'm going to post it and I'm going to see how much money you're willing to give me yes, for me to yeah. take it down because <laughs> I think I would make a very substantial profit on the original $500 investment. Like. I I didn't didn't even grow up in this world like but there is stuff of mine that lives on the internet that I just wish wasn't there like I don't even, I mean maybe now it's got to the point where everyone's posting everything that it doesn't actually matter but I yeah. know that like the the last thing you want is somebody being able to easily access you being shit like <laughs> All I know is it's rare that somebody like looks at just some you know, YouTube video that has 28 views, which are mostly yes. the person who posted it, checking to see if anybody's looked at it yet yeah, and, yeah. and gone, oh, we should make this kid famous, right? Versus people who are like, oh, you've got actually two really good sets now that like you, you filmed an ABC comedy up late and now you've yep. done a, like, you know, this and you've got these two great sets. And when people click on your YouTube page, they watch these two actually good sets that you've done and then the next thing they see is you telling some horrible racist joke or just bad yeah. joke like yeah yeah as the th- i mean you don't want it there no the, the 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 most interesting thing i saw about people coming back to to stand up is most people now have a little tripod with them that they take with them to the gigs mm-hmm. and they have their phone and, and, mm-hmm. and they record all of their sets and they use them and i guess it's in case crowd work works in a way but I'm still you know and I go great you know like people are doing that and that's the way that people love to get things out there but I still love having a moment where you have a chat with the audience member and that's the only time that that's ever going to happen and it's a a fun chat it's really fun I really enjoy it and I go away from that and then when you see them after the gig sometimes they'll say something to you and it's a really nice moment. Like I said to someone the other day, Will, my favourite bits about doing a podcast, you know, 
usually the moments before the podcast starts and uh-huh. after the podcast ends because I've had the best conversations with people that I love, you know, in, there's a comedian, uh, well, a character actor called Stephen Tobolowski who was Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day and he's been on my podcast about six times and before and after we will sit there and chat for about 20 minutes before, 20 minutes after and they are the moments that I'm always going to remember in my head because they are so pure and lovely and I, I just go, I had a, an hour chat with him, what a great what a great week. So I'm interested in this, you know, everyone filming some crowd work for their stand-up for their, you know, so this is, I understand why people do it. So this of is course. not a judgment on people who do it. You want something disposable that you can put into your social media. You don't want to burn your best material on your social media if you're going to be using it. But also there's been some people who've become quite successful doing, you know, crowd work riffs or moments and I think in a lot of people's minds they think that's what stand-up is anyway. I, I went to a new hairdresser because um, the guy I normally go to had to go back overseas for Christmas and uh, I was talking to the guy about what I did, you know, that it, those, just that sort of perfunctory, you know, conversation that you have with somebody in that regard and he said, oh, he'd been to the comedy store to to see a comedy night and he was surprised that it had been there like, you know, one of their regular lineup nights and he was surprised that people weren't picking on people in the audience and and riffing and doing those sort of things because I think for him that's what he thinks stand-up is. Like when he sees his social media feeds, it's full of that. So he thinks that that's what it is. And it's been really interesting for me who has been doing like, you know, a crowd work show, an improvised stand-up show for a decade now and like to the point where it's become, you know, I've done it at the end more. It's like a show that, I do very regularly now and I absolutely love doing. I'm even considering doing like a whole tour of it next year. And so obviously management at some point had the conversation with me, which was, do you want us to be filming some of this and putting it in your social feeds? I mean, you're already doing these shows, you know, you don't have to do a couple of minutes. You're doing like 80 minutes at a time, you know, 20 times a year at the moment or whatever it is. Like we could just be putting this all online. and. There's a part of me that's like, oh, yeah, I mean, yes, if I were a smarter person, then I think that in a way that's what, that is what I would do, right? I've already got this stuff and there's so much great stuff at those shows that nobody ever gets to see. And like, yeah, it probably would do really well online in this moment, but I haven't done it. And the reason that I haven't done it is that I like – that those shows, and in fact, what they've grown into and what I really like about them is I that I'm not doing that style of crowd work. That's mm. not what I do. I don't do short, sharp crowd work. I can build an entire show sometimes out of the, you know, one family sitting down the front. You know, it's not your standard sort of crowd work. And I think it would be misleading to show people bits of it and imply that it is because that's not what it is. And secondly, I just like that it's for the people there that night. In fact, that's the thing I love about those shows the most is in this world of, you know, every people being able to see things filmed and this idea of when I, when I first went to comedy, I thought it was just somebody up there just like talking off the top of their head, making it up all on the spot, like, you know, make – and over the years I've learned how to do that as a show and – I love it and I love it how it is. And I think that 
by filming it, it would change the dynamic. By, you know, I, I, I like the idea that it's an artisanal show. It's only for the people there that night. You literally had to be there. And part of the thing that's good, bad, and different about it is that regardless, it stays here tonight because it was all part of the context of this one show. It wasn't for a 30-second clip that I'm going to put on social media. I, this is the whole show is the show, not just like little moments of the show. So once again, it's probably just a dumb financial decision that I am making. But there is just something – it was interesting when you said that because it's something that I think about a lot because I love those shows because they're for nobody else. Yeah, and I, the interesting thing is that people are so used to seeing Comedian Destroys Heckler or those sorts of things where you you see them and you go, oh, shit. And I had a moment the other night where someone uh, called out something. Or, uh, yeah, he was just talking and I kind of turned and went, what, what are you talking about? And he just said, oh, I was just saying to my girlfriend that I think you're doing a really good job. And I made this routine about like going, it's a lovely feedback, but uh, I I made it be like, oh, like I went really hard on him to go, what? Because I was like so uh, in the moment uh, and I'd done a rough gig the night before and so I was so in the moment where I was like ready to go, stop talking, you know, like and keep moving on or whatever, maybe something quicker than that, not just stop talking or shushing them. But I made the thing about Comedian Destroys Heckler, which is such a funny phrase to bring up that now everyone understands. It's it, it, it's this thing uh, that has it's happened It's so funny everywhere. that you say that because I, I literally have a bit in the show around comedian, like the phrase comedian destroys heckler because I think it has become synonymous with like, I mean, the media in general, everything's yes. about like the amplification of like, you know, yeah, this is the one thing that everybody hates about blah, 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 or yes. whatever it might be. And Comedian Destroys Heckler has become the shorthand for what people think comedy is. They yes. think, like, I don't, want to, I don't want to destroy anybody, really. <laughs> That's like destroy is a lot, you know what I mean? They couldn't like go hard. destroy someone? <laughs> they were no, never I, the same I know again. I destroyed them. <laughs> I, I pretended I was having an affair with their partner. <laughs> I lied to their parents. I, like, I accused them of racism. You know, I've really destroyed them. That's a great sketch idea to have a comedian infiltrate someone's life and they're never the same again. Yeah. And the whole thing is comedian destroys Eckler. Yeah. Not, it's a 90 minute clip of like the comedian follow. It's like, what's that? It's um, basically the king of comedy. Uh, it is a little of the king of comedy, but I was yeah. thinking it's more like falling. It's more like falling down. Is that what it was oh, called, that Michael? Yes, like, yeah, yeah. Where, like, essentially the comedian, like, like the heckler, yeah, has this moment and then the comedian walks off stage and just becomes on this relentless mission to destroy this guy's yes. life. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cable guy. It's so, <laughs> the cable guy. It, yeah. it is just such a, it's a wild, it's a wild thing that now people are so used to it and I, I just seeing people put out their their tripod and their phones and and you know every person that goes on does that and that's a that's a thing and you kind of have to you know while I'm not doing that I respect that they're doing it and understand that they're doing it but I'm kind of also like oh no the sound's not good the the lighting's not going to be good there's so many things that could go wrong in this and maybe you won't post anything but it goes back to that advice that you told me you know to to not put that stuff up 
Like don't, not don't don't put something up when you're being really mean to an audience member for no real reason. Like I was doing a room the other night and there were probably about 20 people there on a Monday night. It was very late and I watched about mm. six people go up and were so mean <laughs> to the audience that they weren't giving them what they needed. And when I got up, I was saying how wonderful it was that there were you know, some people there on a Monday night that late because I wouldn't be out on a Monday night that late. I wouldn't be watching a comedy night that late on a Monday night. And you can almost feel the the people up the front go, oh, like it, it was it was a bit, it was just a nicer experience to go, yes. thank you for coming out. It's so lovely to have you all here and talking to them in a nice way rather than you all suck. Why are you all here? How sad are your lives that you're here on a Monday night? Not I mean, laughing. It's, it's one of the hugest mistakes that comedians make and I know this because I made this mistake for way longer than I should have, you know, like which is blaming the people who are there for the people who didn't come or yes. whatever, you know, the version yep. of that, which is the ones in the room are the ones, you know, they're the ones you should be grateful that are there, right? Like there is no, your hypothetical audience that you have in your mind, regardless of how bad the audience are in front of you, they're what you've got to work with. They <laughs> yeah, came. Yeah. Like yeah. it's all well and good to have a hypothetical better audience somewhere, but yeah. they are not here. This is, <laughs> these are the people who've at least given you a chance. <laughs> they showed up. They're physically there and that's half of it really. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's a lot. That in itself is a lot. They yeah. are there. It's, it's unfair then to like be mean to them about the fact that they are, right? Like that For acknowledgement no of you saying, yeah, the acknowledgement of you saying, yes, it's late, I get it, you know, yeah. is a better way to look at that than it is to the, yes, the blame them for not having enough energy or whatever it yeah. might be at that time of the night. It's late. People are over it. People have other things going on and it's been yeah. a four-hour comedy night and when when at one point a few people got up and left and I was like, I get it. Like, I get it. It's late. Yep. Like, it's so, it's so funny. But then you have someone just going, where are you going? Where are you going? What are you doing? Yeah. Where would you? It's home, like home. To our lives. I'm tired. To our jobs. <laughs> Why are you still here is what? the bigger question. <laughs> Why are you Why still aren't we talking? All going is the question that I, yeah, exactly. I wanted to like, follow them. Can I come too? Yeah. There's and you're that. not going to change my mind. You're not, <laughs> you're not going to change. I mean, I guess the idea is that you scare the rest into staying. But, yeah. again, that's not why you, you – I mean, that's not good for anybody. But no. Anyway, I've been guilty of all those things. Um, Sam, we should finish because I – Yes. I don't, like to, I don't like to say this because uh, – um, I don't I want to put every anyone off um, getting the, the vaccine and their boosters, but I got the most recent vaccine booster yesterday and, oh, my God, it is knocking me around today. Oh, right. So yep. um, I uh, need to stop talking now. It's <laughs> basically <laughs> what my body just told me. It was real waves through my body of like, nah, you've done it enough now. Yeah. That'll do, pig. <laughs> so let's let's your show. Why the Long Face is playing where? Where can people find it? So I'll be in May. I will be in uh, in Brisbane at Good Chat Comedy. I will be at Comedy Republic for a few mm-hmm. nights in May as well. And uh, I'm yet to do Sydney. 
but I'll be doing, once I find a venue in Sydney, I'll be doing Sydney, Perth and Adelaide, I think at the Rhino Room. They'll either be May or or June. But, yeah, they're why the long face? I'm going to do it and and see how much. I, I think it's going to be a really uh, it's going to be a really fun show to do and a really interesting show. And there's there's moments where it's yeah it's, it's not all it's not all fun and upbeat. Some of it's got a you know a few few moments where I go into some interesting areas and I've really enjoyed doing that as well. So yeah, so why the long face is um is the show to come come I'm a- and of course your podcast confessions uh, which of course yes. you have you, you read uh, confessions from reddit but also yeah. you have a um another show called am i the asshole it's all in the one feed this is yep. the new thing that people people <laughs> yeah, do they love like, it yeah keep it in the one feed yeah. but uh people can find that uh lots of brilliant comedians some names that you would know if you've never heard the podcast before but uh, the great thing about it is that it's often I get to hear somebody on that that I am not as familiar with and, yep. and that's one of the great joys of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Confessions is on all of the podcast apps so you can find it. If you just do a little search, I can't do all the work for you. If you do a little search, then Confessions is where you find all of that. Uh, and my, my tour is called Will, Legit- Will Legitimate. Um, it is playing hopefully all over the country. So if, if I'm not coming to where you are yet, I'm hoping that I will at some stage and then uh, hopefully for some international dates in 2025 so you can find all the details at comedy.com.au and of course uh, check out some of the other podcasts in this feed if you are not a philosophy listener or any of the other shows that we do uh, they're all in the one feed now so you can uh, sample one or two of those and see if you like them as well Uh, Sam thank you so much for doing the show today mate thanks for having me Will listener